the Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 51. Podcast Crossovers, Volume 4. Hello everyone and welcome to the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss and in this edition we'll be looking at all the little snippets that we've recorded for other podcasts. First up is a piece we recorded for Round the Archives, which is a brilliant podcast on archive television run by Lisa Parker and Andrew Trowbridge. Well worth your time if you're into that sort of thing. In this segment we looked at an episode of a series called Out of the Unknown from the 1960s called The Machine Stops. Hello boys and girls and a very warm welcome to the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And we are again breaking into Round the Archives. Thank you, Andy and Lisa. Hello. Today we're going to be looking at an episode of Out of the Unknown, which is a BBC science fiction anthology from the late 60s, early 70s. For the first couple of years, it was in black and white. Um, The first three years or so, it did fairly faithful adaptations of science fiction classics, people like Frederick Pohl, Isaac Asimov, and a few more unusual ones written specifically for the series episodes, but not a huge number. The fourth series, different producer change attack, it became much more psychological and supernatural. The episode we're going to be looking at is from the second series, it's called The Machine Stops. Now, I've been looking forward to this one for a while. I'm going to ask you not to give us a premise on this one. Okay. I'll I'll give you a bit of historical background. Okay. It's based on a E.M. Forster short story written in 1909. We'll we'll talk about the, the short story itself and the kind of things that it predicts and the flaws that it has and the strengths that it has after we finish the episode. This is a big chunk of what got me into science fiction telly. I've talked before about the uh, Past Visions of the Future event that was at the National Film Theatre in the late 80s. This was one of the episodes that they showed and absolutely awakened my curiosity for the the series to the point where I got hold of every one of the um, the original stories that were adapted for the series and, and read them because at the time there, there wasn't any chance of seeing anything else. It was unlikely that it would ever be repeated particularly the, the black and white ones. So this is a very special episode for me. It, it's a, a very, very good episode as well. And rather than saying any more about it, shall we just crack on? We should, but we've got two bits of housekeeping first. We do. First of all, we need to get out the tonic screwdriver and open the gym. Three bits of housekeeping, actually, because the Round the Archives team have not met the third member of our team. They haven't, actually. Would you like to say hello and introduce yourself? Oh, he's a little, he's in a grump today and he's a bit shy. This is Spath, the Silurian, and he will be interjecting when he sees fit, but he's, he's terribly grumpy. Sometimes he likes stuff, sometimes he doesn't. We'll see. So, introduction's done. Let's get out the tonic screwdriver. Then we will penetrate from here. Okay, we've whipped off the top of the gin. Which one have we got for today? We've got aviation gin, and refreshingly, it has no info bollocks whatsoever on the uh, the bottle. It's just this is gin. It's American. Fill your boots. I don't like it. Really? No. Oh. It tastes like penicillin with coconut in it. No, definitely not. You see, I quite like that. I I, I hadn't actually got the coconut in it before, but I can see what you mean by that. I think it, it's a little bit peppery. I don't think it's any, anything more than a three. I really don't like that. It's a one from me, I'm afraid. Oh, okay. Do you want different? I'll, I'll let you force that down, and I'll, I'll go and get a, a refill. Let us descend into the bowels of Podcasting House and open the door of the Black Archive. Surrounding us on the shelves are all the bits of lost television and film that have ever existed. And radio. And radio. Because we have pulled radio out of the Black Archive before. Well, that actually leads me on to my, my choice for today, which is the 1955 version of The Lord of the Rings on radio. It was a 12-part series. The BBC broadcast it on the light programme. It was... So they sort of worked with Tolkien on it, but he wasn't very happy. He was... um. There were several things that had been adapted of his for radio. I think there was a reading of The Hobbit, which he didn't like, and I believe he didn't like it so much that he read it himself in the end. But he didn't like this version. Uh, The Fellowship of the Ring took up the first six episodes. 
Two Towers and Return of the King took up the second six. And general reviews were, it was just unadaptable for radio. It was a terrible book to choose and it needed more space to breathe. I would agree that 12 episodes is a little bit short to tell three massive volumes worth of story. I would agree that it's a terrible book. Oh, no, 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 it's... It's dull. Dull, dull, no, dull, it's dull, not. Dull. I, it's one of my all-time favourites. It's a family favourite. And there's a, the 1981 version, uh, Radio 4 version of Lord of the Rings, is beautiful. It's still possibly my favourite adaptation. For me, probably better than the films. Because it it's not all about battle sequences. It's There's there's more of the story comes out and it's condensed. And the the dull bits are all... The wick is trimmed. So I think if, you, if you're reading them as books, they are heavy going. There's so, no getting around it. And the, the thing about Lord of the Rings, yeah, it was absolutely groundbreaking at its time, but its time was the 1940s. Those types of stories have been done with a much a much cleaner and more modern writing style. Mm. Um, Guy Gavriel Kay, for example. Brilliant Tolkien-esque fantasy. Much more accessible, much more readable. And I mean, his stuff's 30 years old now. If not 40, because I was reading those mid-80s. But they're still very readable. Readable. I've only read the first book, and I only got through it because I was stuck in a ferry, on a ferry in the middle of the Irish Sea <laughs> with no money for the bar. Right. Um, and it was the only thing that I had to read. That's the only reason I got through. I found it incredibly dull. Well, what is um, the course is worth? But I've been reading things like David Eddings, the Belgarians, mm. um, the Dragonlance books before before then. So I read the the modernised version before I read the original. Now for fantasy fiction written at that time Gormenghast still really holds up what's going on in that uh, oh the, he tried to read the third book because he, he was not a brain tumour no. at the time and it makes no sense but no, it's it's absolutely brilliant I tried to watch there was a TV adaptation probably about 20 years ago now what the hell's going on in that it was like because June Brown was in it and I just thought I really really want to like this but yeah. it's like being in the inside of Dot Cotton's LSD nightmare. It's, what the hell is going on? Yeah, because there, uh, there were a lot of good people in it, weren't there? Richard Griffiths mm. and um, Zoe Wanamaker. And I really enjoyed it, but it's, I think it's probably a bit like The City in the City. I'd read the book beforehand, mm. which meant that I knew the story, so I could just enjoy it as a telling of that story that I already knew. Coming to it cold, I imagine it may have been a bit of a head fuck. So, putting that to one side, what are you rescuing from the archive today? Right, I'm going to rescue another BBC TV science fiction adaptation from around about the same time as Out of the Unknown. And it was an adaptation in the Strand Story Parade of Isaac Asimov's novel The Caves of Steel. There are a few clips that survive um, that look very good. Uh, it stars Peter Cushing, so that's always good. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would really like to see it because it, again, it's one of his robot sequence. And Out of the Unknown adapted a number of his robot novels, and none of those adaptations survive. They do the profit, they do satisfaction guaranteed, and none of those have survived. Some of his other things that have been adapted for uh, Out of the Unknown do survive. So we've got things like uh, The Dead Past, which is wonderful, which we did, uh, Sucker Bait. But, the, but none of those, those are part of his sort of classic robot sequence. And actually there are some parallels between Caves of Steel and this in terms of plot, which we can talk about afterwards because I'm not going to spoil the plot for you. Excellent. Right, so we'll crack on and we'll see you on the flip side. That was the machine stop. So it's something that I've been. Um, it's been on the list for a while. Aiming for us to do yeah. for, for a long time. I absolutely love that, which is why it's been on the list for a long time. Just to give a little pricey of the mm-hmm. plot before we dissect before it. We, yeah, it's set in the far future where humanity has retreated to subterranean cities, and each person living in their own room. Everything that they want or need is provided for them by the machinery around them. Uh, and there's a, a religion that's grown up about this, that um, every citizen has has a book, which is basically a user manual for the machine, but it, it's taken on an, an almost religious significance. 
And actually, as the story goes further, you see that it's taken on an absolutely religious significance. The story is basically a two-hander between an enlightened modern woman, Vashti, and her son, Kuno. Vashti is a devout adherent of the, uh, the cult of the machine and believes that she's spiritually enlightened and modern and everything the machine does is good and for the best. Kuno is much more keen on doing things for himself. He's fascinated by what goes on on the surface of the, the earth. He builds up his physical strength so he can go to the surface of the earth. He found, finds a, a break in the, the wall of the tunnel that, that's near him. Going through that, finds an old ladder that takes him up to the surface of the earth. And he finds that he, he can't cope with the, uh, the physical stresses that are up there. He's blown over by wind. He, he has trouble breathing the air. And the machine sends out tendrils to, um, to encapsulate him and, and bring him back. He's seen by a young girl who is living on the, um, the earth's surface. The implication being that she's part of a, a group of people who live outside of the machine. She goes to try and help him and is killed. He's pulled back down to um, banned by the machine from going onto the, the Earth's surface again. And the, the final sequence of the, the play is where the machine starts to break down. The title of the machine stops comes from a quote from Kuno, who says to his mother, I've had this new idea, the machine stops. And she can't cope with this idea. She um, dismisses it as ridiculous. She laughs hysterically. But bit by bit, the parts of the machine that she relies on stop working. And in the end, everything stops working. The, um, the inhabitants of the cities are sort of seen crawling almost worm-like <clears throat> through the tunnels. Kuno, while he, he's, because he's more physically strong than the others, is able to walk through the tunnels. But he's knocked down by a kind of tram thing. The final sequence is where Vashti, having gone out into the, uh, the tunnels to try and find Kuno, finds him, but he's dying after the, uh, the impact with the tram. Between they come to realise that the machine is ultimately a bad thing and that at some point a civiliz- another civilization will come along that will start the machine up again. Mm. And then the, the cities are sort of engulfed in a white flare and you, you assume that whatever their, their power source is has, uh, has blown up. Yeah, a bit ambiguous, that ending. I did like it. I liked it very much. But the ending is very much left to the viewer to make up your mind what happened. Well, they both die. That's fairly... Well, he dies. um, She looks up and there's some sort of slow flare and a a rumble. But But she's not even able to stand up. No, but that's because they're all heavily reliant on this. Yeah, and the thing thing that gives them their food has stopped. It might not be that uh, the thing blows up, but they're, they're all dead. Yeah, we've well, I've seen two of these out of the unknowns now, and uh, in both of them, everyone dies. Yeah. So, is there a running theme with this? No, not really. Some of them are some of them are, some of them are quite jolly. Well, a couple of them are. Yeah. Um, you see, the next one is Lambda One, which is another one of my favourites. There are people who die in it, but it has a kind of happy ending. I must say that the the series itself, if those two are representative of what the series is like, this is nineteen sixty six. Yes, the sets are excellent. The sets and the special effects for the time are very impressive. Well, there's, there's actually very little in the way of special effects other than the sets themselves. Well, that's what I mean. Um, and the, the, the backgrounds of, of the sets move. Yeah, there's a bit of mirror on. Yeah, bits of the floor will floor move up. They sit in, it's like a dentist chair, but with a, um, a hexagonal TV screen mm. that they communicate through each other. The language is interesting as well, because Kuno's way of speaking is very old-fashioned. Mm. Uh, no, okay, this was written in 1909, but his speech is almost... It's almost a Shakespearean quality mm. about it, isn't there? Particularly when he's describing the outside. And as as the play goes on, that becomes more pronounced. Whereas her speech is very clipped and mechanical until it gets to the end and, and, and she starts to break down and panic. Mm. That must have been an either love it or hate it series. Or certainly an episode. It's not your typical, well, I'd say it's not your typical 1960s episode, but some of the stuff we watched is completely off its face. You have to have a reasonable amount of, of imagination and love for this type of story to watch that, which I do. Yeah. I, I, and it, it's interesting how a hundred years before the time, because this is a... A hundred and ten-year-old story. A hundred and ten-year-old story. This is a... 53-year-old adaptation, mm. and it's predicted social media. There are a few little niggles with the plot. 
So there, there's one point where Kuno has applied to the uh, to the machine for permission to become a father, and they turn him down because he has a degree of physical strength. However, in the the scenes where you see Vashti going to to visit Kuno on the the airship, and that that's a wonderful sequence because mm. she uh, they, the attendant opens up the um, a sort of viewing window and they're flying over the Himalayas, and she said Vashti says this gives me no ideas. And the, the attendant is basically saying, "Well, okay, I'm a bit old-fashioned. I, I used to, I, I call it Asia by its old name, and people people have called this the roof of the world for uh, since the start of civilization." And the Vashti turns around and said, "What's that white stuff on top of it?" Mm. And the attendant is just, "Oh, oh, I can't remember the name for it." The fact that there is an attendant who walks up and down and answers questions and is is basically an employee kind of jars a little bit with the rest of the, yeah. the whole thing where everybody in humanity is in almost sort of wally type chairs yeah. and there, there's a, a sequence where when kuno is getting himself ready to go out he takes the uh, the pillow off the bed and is using that to to build up his muscles and when he drops it on the floor rather than him bending down to pick it up the floor lifts it mm. up to him and he, he no i will do this myself having Somebody who's in that position of servitude doesn't really fit. No, it doesn't. I've not thought about that until you said it, but yeah, you're right there. We must revisit House of the Unknown. The two that we've seen so far have been very, very good pieces of television. There are a couple that aren't great, but there's more than enough that are for Mm. for us to easily have an episode for. I was going to compare that to Caves of Steel, and I didn't want to talk about this oh, yes, we um, said, yes. before I told you the plot. Uh, Caves of Steel is about a murder investigation on the colonies in Mars. And there are very few people there and they all live in isolation. A big plot point is the fact that they're actually extremely uncomfortable with direct physical contact between humans because they live right. in isolation. And there's an element of that there when, when Kuno is asking Vashti to come and see him. I can't go out of my room. There will be direct contact. There will be direct experience. Mm. Oh, that direct experience, that was it, yes. It's talking about a, a cult of enforced isolation mm. where that is normalised. I think this is a wonderful piece of television. I've watched it loads of times. I still really enjoy watching it. I get, I get a, a lot out of seeing it. I, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Mm, it's I did. one of my favourites. And we must watch more out of the unknown yeah. in future because I, I, I did had worried a little lot. that this was going to be a corridor people moment. No, not at all. That was this is um I think the word you use is dystopian view of the future where everybody is nobody yes. nobody's particularly happy in it and they're all living in this compartmentalized it's a, a bleak view of the future. Yeah, and there's one point where Vashti said, I asked for euthanasia because my lecture didn't work properly or wasn't, <laughs> or wasn't well received. Yes, this is a bleak view of the future. Level 7 is a bleak view of the future. Mm-hmm. Other episodes aren't quite as bleak. There's a couple that are possibly a little bit bleaker that we could look at. We don't often watch things that are outright bleak. You Well, there's, there's one particular example. Well, Threats. No, you know, that's just I'll, been released on DVD. Uh, sorry, on Blu-ray. on Blu-ray. Yes. In case you want the horror, in... I am tempted. I'm tempted. See, I know that you've seen it twice, and that's enough. I've only seen it once, and I'm fascinated to revisit. And you wanted to watch it with your mum. Mum and dad watched it, and they were horrified. So you're sharing the trauma. Well I'm sharing you. the. I think that should be shown in schools. I, I agree completely. If you want to completely eradicate the threat of nuclear war, show threads to kids, or well, high school kids, and get them while their imagination's fresh. This is what will happen, boys and girls, so don't blow each other up. Look after the planet. We've put a lot of work into it. Yeah. Well, we recorded that segment a little time ago. In between, we've had a short hiatus as there's been a global pandemic. Dr. Exton, you've not been very well, have you? No, I haven't. I've been... I call COVID. Uh, and then ended up in hospital with COVID for about a week, uh, needing extra oxygen, and then was home again, recovering for about another ten days. And I've been back in work on on phase return, so uh, just doing short eight till six days rather than the long days I used to do. Yeah, it has really quite knocked it out of me. But on the positive side, I'm not dead. Yeah, I'm going to count that as a big plus. Bizarrely, I have also been picking up the slack for people who have been incapacitated by this. So my work has gone through the roof and podcasting has gone out the door a little bit. So it's been well over a month now since we've had a new episode of our own podcast. 
I have picked up this edition for Round the Archive purely at random because it was the oldest one that we had in the can and it turns out to be about social distancing. So we hope you found it relevant to the current period. We enjoyed recording it, but out of the unknown, any of them really, we've done the machine stops, but any of them are worth a look. It's a really, really good series. I agree with that to an extent. It's kind of two different series with the same title. And I know we haven't done any of the season four episodes because I've deliberately concentrated on the black and white with a plan to come back and do the colour episodes as a part two. The first three series, the ones that were overseen by Irina Shubik, are pretty much classic science fiction, like The Machine Stops. And we've done level seven on one of our previous podcasts. There's things like um, the Isaac Asimov robot plays and there's some Frederick Pohl and classic straight down the line science fiction done very, very well. For the fourth season, Alan Bromley took over and did a, um, a much more psychological urban horror type of um, of show. They're good episodes. I don't enjoy them as much as I enjoy the early science fiction ones because I'm more of a science fiction fan than I am a horror fan. And also it's a terrible, terrible shame that the episode that was written by Nigel Neal for season four and starred Patrick Troughton is one of the missing episodes. Ah, right. But there are, there are still some very good episodes there. I've got an episode, one of our episodes coming up on a number of episodes from the first two series, so the Black and White series. And then we'll come on and do uh, an episode on the Colour series at some point. But there, there's very definitely a change in direction. There are one or two from the Colour series that I'm not wildly keen on and don't really watch that uh, that often. Very occasional one from the Black and White series that I'm not a huge fan of. But in general, certainly the, the well-known episodes, The Machine Stops, Level 7, um, things like that, are really well worth your time. Excellent. So, as ever, thank you, Andy and Lisa, for letting us break into your podcast. We shall slink off back into the shadows and produce more material for a future edition. In the meantime, if you want to check us out, boys and girls, we are The Extermos Experiment on SoundCloud or iTunes. We'll see you again. Bye now. During lockdown, the Killer Rabbit Boys recorded their Covidiot series, and unfortunately, one member of the Exton Moss experiment didn't quite get the idea that you were supposed to phone in with a question. The final message we've got this week is from one of our good friends. Well, it's a friend of a good friend, which in turn makes him a good friend. So this is from Mr. Ken Moss at the Exton Moss podcast. His co-host is, of course, the Doc. And the Doc is doing great things at the moment. So they sent us a little message through as well. And it goes a little something like this. Hi, Rabbits. Ken here from the Exton Moss Experiment, podcasting partner of The Doc. Thanks for the shout-out. For anyone who's interested in listening to two old mates watching Doctor Who and old television while getting whammed, check us out. We're on Twitter at Exton Moss. Thanks a lot, guys. Keep up the good work. Sorry, Sam, I think I've, I think I've had connection issues. I didn't actually hear any question. I just heard a cheap plug. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's that all it was, much. I'm afraid. Got to admire the gumption on that. No, you should go check it out. Uh, we, d- we did want these voice messages to contain questions and, and things like that, but you've taken the opportunity. You sent us a voice message, so we thought we'd play it anyway. And we're big fans of you and the Doc and the Exton Moss podcast. If you're a fan of Doctor Who and old television programs, classic television programs, then you should go check it out. If you're a fan of Gin, then you should go check it out. If you're a fan of vintage television programs, classic television programs and Gin, then oh my God, have they got a surprise. <laughs> For you. <laughs> Go check it out. That's the Exton Moss podcast. And I think that's enough from the mailbag. In the next edition, thankfully, Sir John Hurt came to the rescue. So this was from John Hurt, who heard Benson throwing a bit of shade on the uh, Exton Moss Experiment podcast after they sent us a little plug last week with no questions, nothing to go on, nothing to digest or masticate over. So, uh, <laughs> What? Why are, you, why are you chewing on the uh, question? Or the lack of one? Like food for thought, maybe? I don't know. I don't know where this I'm metaphor is going. I'm My metaphors are all off after watching the, the latest Rick and Morty episode. It's completely... <laughs> They're like meta halls now. I can't even form a cotent simile anymore. Goddamn. So, yeah, they got in touch with us. And this is what they had to say. Hello, rabbits. John Hurt here, calling from beyond the grave. 
My good friends of the Exton Moss experiment were given a good hard bollocking in your last episode for not asking a question. Well, here we go. Why is it, whenever you eat a Chinese, you're hungry again within the hour? Well, John, thank you very much for your question. I think that what the problem is here is that, by and large, excuse the pun, Chinese people are quite small, so they don't fill you that much. Maybe if you ate two Chinese people, they might be a bit more sustained. <laughs> but what if you ate one? It'll be like a three-course meal. <laughs> I don't think that's an insult. If I, I ate know. a person, that would be a three-course meal. I'd start, start at ten start course meal and work my way up. Ten course, ten course meal. meal. Yeah. Taste the meal. No, right, okay. <laughs> In an expensive restaurant. Michelin star <laughs> You'll enjoy it and pay out oh, your ass for it. You, you're small. You're small, you are. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, the reason for that is it's, it's the MSG, isn't it? The monosodium glutamate. It is the MSG. Monster. Absolutely right. Yeah, that was the most factual, boring for. answer we've ever given. Well done, guys. MSG. But I do I'm like MSG question again. on stuff. What's that? I sprinkle MSG on my cornflakes. It's nice with fosters. Along with your fosters. I so think yeah, it's also the... what you've got to remember is obviously a lot of Chinese food is rice-based and rice expands when you first digest it and then it shrinks again. So it gives you the effect of a stomach being full, but then once it shrinks after like half an hour, your stomach's actually like increased capacity at that point. <sighs> Unless you're a pigeon. <laughs> Fuck it, who are you yawning at, you prick? <laughs> you, just, you just said my answer was the most factual bo- and boring sodium ever. Sodium glutate. The- <laughs> Monosodium glutamate. Well, so, so that's allowed, and I don't yawn, well, but then... I well, that's about a factual you it, answer. You said it was the most factual, boring answer, and then you expanded on my answer. Exactly, that's because why, that's what you do in a conversation. Yawn. You expand on factual <laughs> knowledge. Oh God! There's no I'm factual knowledge. I follow the same sodium glutenite and <laughs> blow you up. And there you go. But yeah, that's from the Exton Moss Experiment podcast. Go check them out because uh, the doc features on there. Yeah, doc. Go give him a listen. Well, apparently, according to the doc, he's been sleeping up to 22 hours. I a day, saw so. that 22 hours. Yeah. Well, I'm Ooh. thinking, yeah, have I got it? it. So it's a good point, uh, well, a good time to point out that the doc, our loyal resident doctor, has himself actually contracted COVID-19. And we wish him a speedy recovery. And thanks for all you do for the podcast. And we hope you get well soon. And thanks for everything you've done for other people. And yeah. it's your turn to get some uh, care and attention now. So take care of yourself, doc. We love take you, man. doc. Hope you're well soon. We'll have a gin when all this blows over. Another podcast that we listen to is Adam Richard Has a Theory. Adam is an Australian comedian, and he's got the most infectious laugh on the internet. If you're into Doctor Who, that's probably worth your listen. They're only snippety little podcasts, only ten minutes long. We've been lucky enough to have four mentions this year, so here they are. Fabulous Adam Richard here. Thank you for all your messages about the mummy on the Orient Express. Dr. Simon Exton says, Hindenburg in space. (gasps) Yes, Dr. Simon. Uh, By the way, lovely Dr. Simon, who has been working with COVID patients in the UK, has unfortunately come down with coronavirus himself. It's a little bit unavoidable in a healthcare situation. Um, he is recovering though, so let's all send him our best wishes and uh, hope he's doing well. And thanks for listening, Dr. Simon. Um, also, if you want, you can get onto his podcast, The Exton Moss Experiment, where he gets loaded and watches old TV shows, including my show Outland. He's very sweet about it. <laughs> Ken Moss from the Exton Moss Experiment podcast says, I used to work with someone who had a neck just like the Ergon, <laughs> 200 years old, with the affectionate nickname of Granny Death. 20 years later, she's still with us. Never underestimate psychosynthesis. <laughs> I never, I didn't understand what psychosynthesis was, and this has not helped. Um, uh, gorgeous Simon Exton, also from the Exton Moss Experiment podcast, says, Thanks to Adam Richard, I've rewatched Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS and rather enjoyed it. Yay! We rehabilitated an episode! Woohoo! <laughs> um, by the way, I went to their Twitter feed the other day, uh, the Exton Moss Twitter feed, and there is the most bat poop crazy video of Jackie Lane, who played Dodo in the 60s. It's called Dodo and Company. It is 
Berserk. Um, it's basically a, a re-edit of the Canine Company in intro sequence, but instead of uh, <laughs> instead of Sarah Jane, it's Dodo. It's very strange. <laughs> Ken Moss from the Exton Moss podcast uh, said um, about the 10th planet, it wouldn't really be any different if they hadn't landed. The wire cutters are the sole contribution and Barkley would have found some other minion to do it if Ben wasn't there. That is true. I mean, the doctor's unconscious for a lot of it. Um, he also says the Doctor performs the first on-screen portrayal of a Doctor Who fan, casually telling everyone he knows what's going to happen in future episodes, but refusing to reveal where he got the information from, <laughs> and then watching from a distance as everyone squabbles about it. <laughs> that is um, that is very Doctor Who fan-like behaviour. <laughs> Ken Moss from the <laughs> Exton Moss podcast says, no plot, but who cares? <laughs> they ramp up the first Doctor's sexism way beyond how he ever was. But again, who cares? Sublime to look at and superbly acted. I could watch this over and over. What a beautiful end to the era. The last segment this time is another piece we recorded for Round the Archives. And during lockdown, we're tending to look at things which dealt with a the theme of isolation. In this segment, we looked at the only surviving edition of Out of This World, which was another anthology series looking at science fiction stories. And this one was called Little Lost Robot. Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton, and we are invading around the archives. We are, and today we have something... It's one of the BFI presentations. It's called Out of This World, which is the only surviving episode of an anthology series from the early 1960s, this one is called Little Lost Robot, uh-huh. and it's the only surviving episode. This was a, a, a spin-off science fiction anthology series from um, Armchair Theatre. And while he was producer of Armchair Theatre, uh, Sidney Newman took a, um, a young, I think she was Canadian, science fiction fan called Irene Shubik on as an associate producer. And he was grooming her to become a, uh, a producer in her own right, which she did with, with this show. There was... Um, one episode called Dumb Martian that was part of the armchair theatre strand. And at the end of that, there was an advert saying, got a new show coming up for Saturday nights out of, out of this world. And this is the sort of thing that you're going to see. It was uh, fronted by Boris Karloff, who is unrecognisable from his monster roles. But from the one that we can see here, almost a slightly camp portrayal as, as your sort of classic, classic horror host in the sort of in the American tradition. There is only one full surviving episode, which is the third episode, Little Lost Robot, uh, transmitted on the 7th of July 1962, although the two subsequent episodes, Cold Equations and Imposter, survive as, as audio recordings. Little Lost Robot was written by Isaac Asimov. The adaptation was by Leo Lehman and directed by Guy Verney. And it tells the story of um, one of Isaac Asimov's classic early robot stories. And his first robot protagonist was a robot psychologist by the name of Dr. Susan Calvin. And she is called up to this distant space station to deal with a problem with identifying a robot. And they have specialised robots there, one of whom has been told to get lost by an aggravated engineer, who it transpires is very anti-robot. The robot has taken this absolutely literally, and there is a consignment of 20 identical robots that is due to be shipped out to one of the other hyperspace bases. And this robot has hidden himself in amongst those other ones. So they have 21 robots, one of which is out of place. And the robot series of stories that establish the classic laws of robotics, and the first one of which is that a robot cannot harm a human or through its own inaction allow a human to become harmed and this starbase engineer disagrees with that second statement so insisted that robots that work with him don't have the second statement put into them so they can through their inaction allow a human to be harmed and this is obviously a a dangerous thing to happen Susan Kalman recognizes this immediately her tag along that you never really get a 
a feel on quite what the professional or personal relationship between them is. As approved, the first law of robotics can be adapted under these circumstances. They're about to send out to this dangerous environment a robot that could ignore the peril of a human. So they're very, they're very, very concerned not to do that. So they, they bring Susan Kalman up and she devises a series of tests to work out which one of these robots it is. And they put one of the station crew under a heavy weight and drop it down with the robots, believing it's going to squash him. They all rush forward, including the, the one that's missing, because he's worked out that that's what the other robots would do. They then put a robot deadly field in between and drop it. And none of them move forward because they realize that there's, there is no point sacrificing themselves for something that's going to happen anyway. And with the final test, they tell the robots that there's going to be this uh, deadly destructive ray in between them and the person under the, the weight, which for this final test is Susan Calvin herself. The robot that has been working on the station for the last several months is aware of the difference between a benign ray and a deadly one. The other robots aren't. So when they switch on a benign ray, none of the robots move forward apart from this one who is able to tell the difference. And so they've worked out that that's the one who has lost. And he starts going mad because he's basically been following his programming. He's done what he was told to do. He was told to get lost. He went and got lost on a space station. The best way to get lost was to hide himself in amongst other identical robots. And the engineer, who has been very anti-robot from the word go, and is the one that told him to get lost in the first place, comes along and starts hitting him and saying, you've caused us all these problems. The robot then strangles him. And so they witness the first murder of a human by a robot. The robot is then killed by the, the station security. And the, the 20 witnesses to that, who are the 20 robot witnesses, to the first robot murder, go off to, uh, to their distance assignment. Like all of Asimov's stuff, it's a very clever story. I, well, I think I sent you a message after I'd been watching for about five or ten minutes saying how wonderful it was. Bear in mind, this is 1962, so very early science fiction. From an early point in the episode, they make mention of these 20 robots that are in the hold of this ship. And you think, well, 1962, they're never going to make 20 robot costumes. And they do. But the, the sets overall, that, that okay, there are... The whole thing is done on about three sets. Mm. And so there's, there's the commandant's office. There's a little um, office that they give uh, Susan Calvin. And then there's the the big set, which is the, the radiation room where they do all their robot testing. But that's a very intricate set. It's multi-level and um, all of the human technicians are, are at a sort of upper dais, upper set of stairs. There's this big um, cantilevered weight that drops down. I can't remember what they, they said it was there for in the first place, but it, no, it's that being was used to it. Always, it felt a bit incongruous that they had this great big weight dropping machine. I couldn't actually figure out what it was for or why it was there. There was an explanation for it. I just can't remember what it is. I, th I think it was a counterweight for a crane or something. Or something. But there was a, a reasonable explanation for why that, that counterweight was there. But they had a step dais for all the robots to, to stand on. And they all obviously had people in because they were moving ever so slightly. So it wasn't just they got a whole load of shop dummies and stuck these robot costumes on. I mean, possibly at the back they had. But certainly the first couple of rows were moving. The robot costumes themselves don't look great. No, but they're a bit ducky. But we're talking pre-Tribe of Gum. Yes, but they, they get the point across. They've all got centre-right feet. And, yes, and, uh, without Susan laughing at them. But I, I was just impressed that they'd gone to that effort to... All right, it's a very primitive robot costume, but at least they have actually... They've not tried to done photo blow-ups in the background. There are 20 extras playing those robots. I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah. But the robot walk, whenever they walk, it is horribly wobbly. It is the archetypal, stiff-legged 1950s robot walk. The man playing the Admiral is sweating heavily under the studio lights. I don't know where this was filmed, but it must have been bloody hot, because he's in full regalia, and in every scene he seems to be drinking whiskey. It's um what I assume is an early outing for... Asimov's law, as it's come to be known, that a robot cannot harm or allow to be harmed a human being. I think this was the first, certainly British television adaptation of one of Asimov's robot stories. As I say, the, the early stories have has Susan Calvin as a, a 
primary protagonist. Sadly, none of the other adaptations from the 60s on British television survive. And the terrible shame is that one of the Out of the Unknown ones, The Prophet, had Susan Calvin played by Beatrix Lehman, so Amelia Rumford herself. And her sausage sandwiches. But yes, I'm not they're... intimately familiar with Asimov. Does the Asimov's Law, does that, which is never referred to on screen, of course, but... Well, it, it was never called on the books Asimov's Law. It was called the, uh, the Laws of Robotics, and Susan Calvin was actually the one who came up with them. Um, it's called Asimov's Law because he was the one that wrote the short stories that came up with it. But does it crop up in any of the other books? Oh, yes. Yeah, right the way through, because it, it's a shared universe. Susan Calvin then goes on to, a few hundred years later, the robot detective stories of Elijah Bailey, which directly leads on to the Foundation trilogy. Well, actually, they became far more than a trilogy. And you assume that the great project they're talking about here is the beginnings of the Foundation Library. It's never never explicitly stated, but knowing the rest of the Asimov mythology. Again, I'm ashamed to say that I, I don't really know Asimov very well. And one of the things that surprised me, actually, was when they were doing the whole interviewing the robots thing, they were shown to have AI. It wasn't, they weren't just simple functionaries. Yeah, and there's a big thing about how Susan Calvin is there because she's a psychologist, not because she's there as an engineer. Black, who is the engineer, who was, was saying, I understand all the, the positronic stuff. I understand how the, these things work. And she's saying, yeah, but you don't understand how they think. Mm. And that's the important thing here. So she is there because she understands the psyche of the robots rather than she understands the engineering of it. Now, it, there are some odd bits in the plot from uh, looking at it from a, a more modern lens. So it's very odd that they spend three months sending this incredibly eminent scientist who has never been off world, world before to this obscure station in, in Saturn, when it would have been an awful lot more effective just to send the 21 robots back for her to deal with on Earth. Maybe she wanted a jaunt as well. well no, because she starts off right at the beginning saying, I've never been off Earth and I've no, never wanted to because my life's in a laboratory. A bluff. She just wanted a freebie. There is a, a bit towards the end where they realise they're being watched by the robot and it runs back to the, the radiation hall where they're, they're all being held. Realistically, in, the, in this day and age, and that this is supposed to be set about 2040, but realistically, there would be cameras everywhere and you would very quickly learn which of the robots it was that was running along. But actually, all you would do is change the plot slightly to say that the, the robot has tapped into the camera feed and has worked out the conversation they were having about how to work out who it was. Oh, yeah. The other thing is they're, they're saying that they don't know which robot is which, but then each robot is introduced by a number. So it's sort of, um, we don't know which of these robots is, is one. Could it be seven? Could it be 15 or whatever? So you kind of assume that those numbers have been designated after the event. That was my reading of the situation as well, yeah. All in all, I thought that was a, a, a wonderful piece of television. Yeah, we can pick it apart with 21st century eyes till the cows come home, but the fact of the matter is that was a really nice bit of television. And I must shout out to the BFI, who, whenever they present these things on DVD, they are always lovingly done. If you've got the letters BFI on anything, you know that it's going to be restored and presented lovingly. The booklet with this thing, it's about 20 pages thick, and it's in real depth about the whole series, written with love, the print on the DVD is not only the original four or five line print, cleaned up, but still four or five line. They've also deinterlaced it and vidfired it so that you get an even better print. Plus, there is the audio of the two Survivor episodes. It's a really nicely presented thing, considering it's only one episode. It's beautifully done. Yeah, and actually, the the audio of the or the first audio, the, the cold equations, is worth talking about because Imposter, the second one, it's all about an alien who's pretending to be a human or is it a human who's pretending to be an alien pretending to be a human or a, an alien who doesn't realise that he's pretending to be human. And it, it's the whole Philip K. Dick mindfuck thing. Um, <laughs> but it would be very visual and it do, that doesn't come across massively well on the audio. But the audio of the cold equations is just absolutely wonderful and it, it makes it realize just what a, a gem is missing the story is about a supply pilot who is traveling to a remote outpost planet and there is a stowaway on board who wants to travel to see her brother who's on the, uh, the planet the problem is that all the energy requirements have been very carefully tailored to just one person and the cargo and the cargo is all sealed away so they can't jettison some of the cargo 
one of the the two people on board, the pilot and or the the stewardess, has to be jettisoned to be able to manage a safe landing. The stowaway would not be able to to land the ship, so she has to she has to jettison herself. And it's absolutely beautifully done. It's basically a two-hander between Jane Asher and Peter Wingard. It's quite a heartbreaking performance. I suspect that if this survived, it would be an absolute classic. I know you had had a listen to it. What did what did you think? Well, unfortunately, this was done after a very long day, and I fell asleep after about ten minutes. So I can't really give a an appraisal of the of the episode itself. All I will say is the audio isn't nicely cleaned up. It's not some crackly old reel-to-reel. They presented it as best they can. So I don't know is the honest answer, but you have recommended it and I will be look, uh, will be listening to it. Yeah, it, it's well worth a listen. And we, we are doing doing these episodes kind of as a, a very quick throw together because we're in the middle of the coronavirus stay-at-home drama. And I'm actually fairly limited because I mean, as a hospital doctor, I'm not staying at home. I'm going into work and I'm working on a, a COVID ward and I'm doing long shifts. So I'm fairly limited in terms of what time I have available to do these recordings. And if we hadn't done this now, then it would have been over a week before we could do the next one. I'm gasping here. Should we get the tonic screwdriver out? Indeed we should. Tonight's offering is House of Botanicals Maple Old Tom Gin. It's a 47% gin, so it's quite strong. And the info bollocks... It's a buttery mouthfeel with bright fresh notes of juniper and prime predominant, balanced with warm orange citrus, vanilla, chamomile with an H, and subtle hints of maple on the finish. How else do you spell chamomile? I mainly see it without the H. Yeah, but lots of people spell things wrong. I shall let that one slide. Serve with ice and mix at a maximum two to one with fever tree ginger ale again, and yes, garnish no. with a wedge of pink grapefruit. We don't really yes. do that. We, we, we just don't, do ice We don't wreck gins with ginger ale. Um, and it says that the botanicals are juniper, angelica, oris, coriander, orange, lemon, cassia, almond, saffron, chamomile, ginger, and maple. I was really, I had high hopes for this one. 47%. Uh, when they get that strong, they're usually pretty good. This one. I'm and maple, I was expecting something nice and sweet, which it isn't. It's got a lovely taste of fur about it. That that really hits you in the hindbrain the moment you take it. There, there are real nice undercurrents of saffron as well. And saffron as an ingredient in gin is usually very overpowering or pretty much you can't taste it. Whereas this just gets a really nice balance. So you, I, you can taste it, but it doesn't overpower anything. I'm getting bugger all from this. I'm really unimpressed. No, I, it's a four from me because I think this is very nice. No, no, you see, it's a two from me because I'm not getting... There's no smell hitting me when I put the glass to my lips. I'm not really getting much in the way of taste. Uh, I mean, there's only a dash of tonic in this. Yeah, but there's probably about half an iceberg full of ice. Just a couple of cubes, with a couple of tardises of ice. You have you have never made a gin and tonic with only a couple of cubes in in your life. For the tasters, I only put a couple of cubes in. No, I'm massively disappointed with with, with Which this. Which one's about half a ton? Well, I can't get the wagons. They're not delivering during lockdown, so I'm having to make do with a couple of cubes like everybody else. Anyway, pick up your glass. I shall descend with Spaff into the Black Archive. You get your hologram projector out and join me virtually. Oh, is that what this is? I just assumed it was some weirdness that Spaff had sent me. And frankly, after the last one, I'm a little not inclined to switch it on. On the subject of that, what do you have to say for yourself, Spaff, about that? You know what you've done. I shall destroy you if you defy me again. Oh, cheeky. Not sure that's called for. Perhaps leave him upstairs. Go on, off you go. The creature is becoming aggressive again. And don't be rude. On the theme of sort of robotics and Asimov and that sort of thing, I'm going to rescue the bits of tomorrow's world that are missing. Now, in terms of archive survivability, it's not that bad. Um, a lot of the film inserts from the 60s do still survive, but I believe quite a few of the links and the in-studio material, because they were transmitted live at the time, they haven't survived. So, in terms of missing material, there's not an awful lot, but it's it's gone and it's worth having back. Uh, Tomorrow's World, for those who aren't familiar, it was a, a Science of the Future programme on the BBC, and it ran for 
decades. It was from the 60s through to the 90s, typical Friday night viewing, and it was gadgets of the future, which now you look at them, there were a lot of them were way, way off the mark, but a lot of them were surprisingly accurate as well, years in advance of when they came on the market. I used to enjoy watching uh, Tomorrow's World. It was Judith Han, wasn't it, and Michael... Take your pick. There was Howard My... Stapleford, Howard Stapleford even. I was thinking of glory days when I used to watch it. Um, I'm just trying to think. I was early 80s when I watched it, mainly. I see, it was on just after Top of the Pops in the 70s, so I, I used to watch it then. I remember Maggie Philbin. Michael Rudd. Oh, that was just before I started watching. It was uh, Peter McCann. He was the one I remember, with Judith Han. Maggie Philbin? Maggie Philbin was in it, yes. That was sort of my era for watching it. Uh, I didn't really watch it in the 90s. Apart from one episode in 1993 where the TARDIS was in it. Gig. Yeah, might be. Guilty as charged. What's your rescue for this week? It's tipping forward a, a little bit, but still science fiction. ITV series called The Adventures of Don Quick. It was a science fiction retelling of Don Quixote with Ian Hendry as Don Quick and Sam Kelly as his subordinate, who yes. is Sam Panzer. You talk to people, they have very, very fond memories of it. The first episode does survive. I've never seen it, and I would quite love to. Hello, network. But it would just be really nice to, to see the rest of it. And if all of it survived, we would stand a higher chance of getting a, net a network release, which would be lovely. So with that, we will turn off this thing that Spaff has sent me and return you to the very capable hands of Andy and Lisa. Thanks for having us, guys. See you later. Bye now. That's it for this time, boys and girls. We'll be back next week with another edition looking at the Avengers in honour of Diana Rigg and Honor Blackman. Until then, I hope you've enjoyed what we've had to say. We'll be back soon. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss and the title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rushton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook.